What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and we've got our third of fourth shows this month, all on physician contracts. And we had great conversation with John Apino earlier this month on the trends that they're seeing. They review thousands of contracts a year and all the trends that they're seeing in the physician contract space. And we're now going to be talking all about the evaluation of your employment agreement and the risks associated with that. And last week, we obviously talked on compensation and how hopefully you guys can earn more money and protect the money that you're earning. But before we jump further into the show, I want to say a special thank you for our sponsor of today's show, which is Advice Media. And now make no mistake, because digital marketing is a science and Advice Media has created a proven roadmap that gets you from where your practice is now and to where you want it ultimately to be. They call it their pyramid of success and thousands of clients have proven that their six stage approach is the optimal way for attracting new patients and retaining current ones. We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to be a digital marketing expert. You have lives to change and save. Give them just 30 minutes of your time to consult with you. They would bet you're doing some things really, really well. And there just might be a few areas where you can improve. And that's where they're going to come in to help you. So just for spending the time with them, they'll also give you a $60 Amazon gift card. You really have nothing to lose. So book your consult today. Check them out. DrPodcastNetwork.com slash advice media. And like we always do, the link is in the description of the show you're listening to us in right now. All right. And like always, our disclaimer, we always do those. They're very important. So please don't skip over this or fast forward because it's literally 15 seconds long. But please don't take any advice from this because this is not advice. This is educational tips and tricks for entertainment purposes only. And yeah, shouldn't take advice from anyone on the internet. Hopefully, though, this is interesting and get you thinking. And contracts are important. It's how you make your money. It's how you earn your livelihoods, how you pay for the fun vacations and things for your kids and family and all sorts of stuff. So it's really important. And that's why we're bringing John Apino from Contract Diagnostics on to talk all about this really, really important subject. And that's why we've dedicated a whole month to it. Think about how important that is. An entire month of our podcast is dedicated to getting your contract reviewed, to walking through your contract and making sure that you understand what you're signing. It's really important. So let's bring John on and nerd out on evaluating those contracts. John, what's up, man? Welcome back on the show. Hey, always good to be here. I do appreciate it. Always have fun hanging out with you on this show, of course. I mean, these are some nerdy topics, right? It's not as nerdy (laughs) as tax. What are you talking about? What could be more fun and exciting than looking at contracts all day or talking about words on paper? I'm going to think of about a billion other things are more fun. Not going to lie. But the thing is, this isn't supposed to be fun. This isn't the sexy topic of investing in real estate and passive income and all that other stuff, which is cool. This stuff is really, really, really important. This is your livelihood. This is how you make money and you need to understand how your money is made, right? I talk on the show all the time about budgeting, right? The dreaded B word. I'm throwing it in like two minutes into the show. That's not about budgeting, (laughs) but I am because I always reference how your money comes in and how it's going out. And I talk all the time about how it goes out, right? Whether you're getting products that you need, like disability coverage, or, you know, you're saving for that vacation or building emergency fund or whatever it may be right? But I don't talk about how money is coming in and protecting the money that is actually coming in, in the form of that contract. So I'm really excited to dig into today's topic. And this is really about the evaluation of risk within the contract. So I'd love for you to kind of start out with, we've got the contract, right? How do we actually look and evaluate the risk inside of that contract? 
Yeah. Well, I think every physician, before they can do that, they need to establish what their frame is. Is their frame to work here for a year as they support their spouse, as they do a fellowship, and then they're taken off? If so, maybe there's different ways to evaluate risk. Certain things may be important to you that wouldn't be important if you had a different long-term strategy. Other physicians want to start at a position and they're willing to take maybe less money and work harder initially to become a partner and then reach the promised land, if you will. Others, they want to work their tail off and pay off some loans and retire early. Other people want to just settle into a job and work there for 30 years. Others, they have no idea what they want to do and they're single and they've never been to Charleston, South Carolina. So they want to go check it out for a couple of years and they might stick around. They might not stay, but maybe it's a five-year deal until they figure it out. They're married or kids. Everyone's story is a little different and it doesn't matter what the story is. I think every physician needs to define their story and say, this is what I'm looking for out of this job. And then based on that, then there's different ways that you could evaluate risk. I love that you started there because that is really talking all about what we do with life planning and the behavioral side of finance and understanding what's important to you and why you're doing the things you're doing. Why do you get up in bed and do all these things or sacrifice time away from your family? Cause that's all this is right. All of our jobs, this is time away from the ones we love and the things we love doing. And maybe we love our jobs. Hopefully we love our, but understanding and starting with your why and what's the purpose and what you're doing is critical. I love that you started there. Let's assume that they've been, you know, diligently listening to the podcast and getting all these corny dad jokes And they've thought through and done some life planning. They know their why. I know it's a big assumption, but let's assume it. Where do we go from there? So areas of contracts that may pose risk. There might be upfront compensation or student loan reimbursement, stipends we've talked about, or relocation dollars. Those maybe are most likely tied to a repayment provision. It could be one year, two years, up to five years. And that doesn't matter if you want to be there for one year or for a long term. Knowing and understanding what the repayment provisions are for any upfront cash is important. Obviously, having it forgiven if the contract ends for any reason is fantastic, but usually employers won't go for that. So having it forgiven if it ends outside of your control, which might be no-cause termination, maybe death or disability, or a for-cause termination by the physician if that's in the contract. Other things to evaluate as far as risks go would be how a bonus is paid. We've talked about that before. You could talk about malpractice insurance. Could a patient sue you after you're gone? And if so, how would that look? Who pays for that? Is the tail insurance paid by you? Is it paid for by the employer? Is it a federally qualified center with no tail required? Is it an occurrence policy or a claims policy? Could you transfer the policy to your next employer potentially and not even tail out? Is it forgiven on certain instances? So understanding how the tail insurance is paid, tail insurance can range from four to 5,000 bucks to 180,000 bucks depending on the where and the specialty and the length of employment. That's obviously a super important one to make sure is understood and fit. And then of course, restrictive covenants. So non-competes can be in many contracts. It's important to understand if the contract doesn't work out for any reason, and you and I have talked about the stats before on what percent of physicians don't stick around long-term, whether or not that's their intent. If you can't work in a certain radius, whether it's two blocks or three blocks in Manhattan, or 13 counties in North Carolina, or 100 miles in North Dakota. It's important that the physicians understand the risk for all of those types of things. Yeah, I want to unpack malpractice for a second, because this is an area where most people are like, yeah, I get it. I know I need it. Or maybe they're covering it, but they've got a very like superficial level, and they don't think one tier down. When someone is reviewing their contract, or they're getting several offers, how do you guys do an analysis on 
let's say there's three jobs and malpractice is going to change. Like how much does that factor in or not necessarily negotiating power, but just how do you approach reviewing and analyzing, evaluating that contract specifically to malpractice? Yeah, well, it's got to be clear. Sometimes contracts, they won't mention it. And in the benefit guide, which may or may not change, it'll say you'll have malpractice insurance. And we have no idea what type. We have no idea what the limits are. We have no idea about anything as far as termination and what happens on termination. So our frame at contract diagnostics is to make sure that it's very clear and that the physician understands it. And obviously that we want it to be in the physician's best interest. But it's important that the physician understands if it's an occurrence policy or a claims policy. And just a brief overview, an occurrence policy covers the claim when it, if the policy is in place when it occurs. If the claim occurred but is filed later on, it doesn't matter because it occurred during the time that the policy was active, which means a tail insurance policy is not needed for an occurrence-based malpractice insurance. A claims policy doesn't cover post-termination claims. So a physician or the hospital or somebody would have to secure that tail provision. And even if the contract says that you don't have to buy tail insurance, it's likely that your next employer is going to force you to prove prior acts. So even if the contract says, if you want to, you can buy tail insurance, maybe the physician thinks, oh, I don't need to, or I don't want to, or I can choose at that time. In order for you to take your next job, you might have to prove that prior acts are covered, which means if they say, you've got to prove it, and you say, I didn't buy it, and the other employer didn't buy it, you can't take that job, which is a requirement in most positions, or you're going to have to buy your tail. In in a nutshell, there's a claims policy, there's an occurrence policy, there's some places that have self-insurance, and those can be a little bit different. Federal qualified centers have a a comprehensive plan, but but for the most part, there's those two policies, and and there's a lot of like kind of sub-policies and different situations that an employer could set up. For the most part, it's important that physicians understand what kind of policy they have, what the limits are, how excess claims are calculated or paid, And then, of course, what happens on termination is super, super important because as you and I have talked, a huge financial mistake could be made that could just derail many of your financial goals early in a career. If you've got to come out of pocket 50 or 60 or even $14,000, it could be a big loss. Even $5,000, like anything is a massive potential loss or L in that column, if you will. And when you are working with clients and and you've seen that malpractice isn't specifically stated or references a guidebook or or whatever it may be. What's the next step there? Do you ask for that specifically in writing in the contract? Is it a red flag if the the company's no, it's in our guidebook and that's where it sits? Like, how do you guys approach that if someone's sitting down and trying to figure out how this tail coverage could work and if they need it? I, I think it's also really important to just emphasize the last piece you said is that it is typically required that you have prior acts covered. And so if your employer is not paying for it, you will be paying for it in order to get a new job. I want to just, I think, say that one more time just to make sure that it's understood. Yeah. No, how we would guide a physician in that situation, if there was a reference to another document, we always want the physician to see all policy manuals or benefit guides. We encourage them to look at the policy, get a copy of the malpractice policy from the malpractice broker if they need to. We encourage talking to the malpractice broker if necessary. If the physician can request changes in the contract that make it specific, one thing that we are seeing more often is we will see the practice will procure a pop, doesn't say what kind, and then it'll use the word if. And you can imagine in a contract, the word if is fluid, right? So if it's a claims policy, then such and such a person buys tail. Let's just say it says we will provide a policy. And if it's a claims policy, the physician will buy their tail. 
And the group says, oh, but don't worry, it's an occurrence policy. Okay. And the physician thinks, well, I don't have to buy my tail there. Correct. As of today. And unless the contract says something about them being unable to change the policy without your permission or without a six-month notice, they could change a policy and the if it's a claims policy is now active and the physician would buy their tail. So there are some of those micro things that are difficult to pick up on that I think all physicians should be sound on picking up in their contracts or having somebody who can, can find those things. But, but yeah, there's all different ways that a physician could do diligence. Of course, one of them is just making sure that the contract is sound in its language. It's very clear. It's very understood. But depending on how the contract ends, what happens? Or if it's an occurrence plan, they can't change it. Or if they can change it, they've got to give you a notice greater than your no-cause termination. So if they wanted to change it and you can quit in 90 days, they have to give you 120 days. So they would need to come to you and tell you that they're going to change it in 120 days. And if it's unacceptable to the physician, he or she can say, then I quit. Here's my 90 days notice. And then, of course, you would end under that current occurrence policy with no need for tail. If the employer wouldn't document anything, it would be a red flag. I would still talk to the malpractice broker. I would still look at the policy manual, but knowing that the malpractice broker might get fired next week, knowing that the practice can change their policy at any time, unless it says specifically that they can't. So it's important that the contract's very clear on what the practice will provide and no different than it is, we're going to provide you a salary of 300,000 a year. Okay. It doesn't say we'll provide a salary depending on the compensation structure at the time. It's very clear in the agreement and the malpractice insurance provision should be the same. You mentioned the restrictive covenants and I'd like you to maybe unpack that a little bit and start maybe 20,000 foot view and work your way down a little bit, maybe on to specifics with inside there and how someone listening could evaluate the risk within those covenants. So everyone's aware of the term non-compete. Sometimes it is a non-competition. You can't work in a certain market for a defined period of time. Although there might be other restrictions, like you can't solicit employees, you can't solicit patients, you can't solicit referral sources, but most common people refer to the non-compete. And a non-compete is time-bound for one year post-termination, for two years post-termination. In most markets, we see one or two years. In some markets, like in the Northeast, we'll see two or three years for post-termination. So if your job ends today for the next one year, two years, or three years, you are restricted from working in a defined geography. Most often, it's defined by a mile radius. And some people go to Google and they type in this hospital or that hospital. And of course, the Google Maps looks like this. And they say, it's 12.4 miles, but it's not 12 miles. It's three miles. The way the roads go is 12 miles. So they're typically as the crow flies, if you will, which is that straight line radius as a bird would fly. So don't use Google Maps, everybody, for evaluating your non-compete. There's better tools out there for utilizing uh, to evaluate the non-compete. But it's typically a mile radius. Some places have county radiuses. Some places will just restrict prep certain hospitals. So it might say you can't work at these five hospitals. We've also seen where a contract will say you can't work for a hospital, but you can go work for a private practice. Other times it'll say something similar to that the employer may let the physician out to join in a private practice. So maybe the employer will say, we want you to stay on staff for at least three years, and then you can go work at the, pri- at the private practice, assuming that the physician would continue to refer to their specialists and admit patients at their facilities. But we see non-competes very often, and it's important that the physician understands them. It's important that they understand which locations they are. So depending on how the contract is drafted, it may say the primary location, which is the non-compete, the primary location is the office on Fifth Street. 
It may say it's from any hospital. And the word hospital may be defined as the global system. And they may have five hospitals. They may have 12 hospitals. They may have 40 hospitals. They may have 100 outreach clinics. And is it from any place that the physician has been or the primary place? If it's the primary place, is it the primary place based on revenue, based on RVU generation, based on time, based on patient count? How do they define primary location? If it's any location the physician's been, or if it's any facility that the employer has, maybe the physician's a interventional cardiologist and they do procedures at one hospital, but it's from any facility that the employer has, which could mean seven hospitals and 24 outreach clinics. That's pediatric or neurology clinic. So if it's 10 miles from everywhere, it could be catastrophic pretty quick. So it's important to understand from a risk perspective, is, it, is the mile radius okay? And is it market appropriate? Again, we've seen block radiuses to 100 miles. The time restriction, is it six months, one year, 18 months, three years? Is that appropriate? And then how is it enforced? So is it in any situation? which means that if they don't renew your contract, so if you work for two years and they don't renew you, is a non-compete live or does it go away? Um, if they terminate you without cause, is it live or does it go away? Disability and telehealth is a different ballgame that's ironing out right now as far as can you sit at home and work with patients in Arizona if you have a non-compete in Nebraska. That's a whole other discussion, I feel. But there's a lot of ways that you can try to balance the risk in your non-compete. They may say we don't take it out if they have it in there, the chance that you get it 100% removed is slim. But if you can get it balanced to your primary location, if you can get it from 50 miles to 10 miles, if you can get it forgiven, if they don't renew you at similar rates, so you don't want them to offer you half the pay and you say, no, thank you. And then it's not that they didn't renew you, it's that you declined. So if they don't renew you at similar rates, or if they terminate you without cause, or maybe you terminate for cause, depending on how the termination provisions are set up, we feel it's very fair if the physician requests in those situations that the non-compete be forgiven. We also see buyout clauses where in, in some markets it's mandatory, in other markets it might be optional, where you can buy your freedom. Unfortunately, most commonly, it's one times your W-2 earnings. So if you're a cardiologist in Texas and you make $450 a year or $500 a year, you can buy your way out of your non-compete for $450 or $500 a year. So would they negotiate that down to 50000 where you'll give them a cash payment and they'll let you go work where you want to? That's an option as well. We haven't had a lot of physicians be successful by having the non-compete kick in only after a year or two. But I feel if you're a brand new to town, now the employer has costs associated with the physician being there. They've relocated them and all that. But if the physician is willing to give all the relocation and the signing bonus back within the first year, the employer losing that clinician is likely not too damaging. They likely haven't built up their practice to 2,000 patients. So if the physician leaves early in a career, they're likely not going to take 2,000 patients and millions of dollars in revenue with them. So we feel it's fair in some situations to request the non-compete, not even be live for the first six months or the first nine months or the first 12 months as you guys are figuring out, is this a good spot for me to be long-term? So all different kinds of ways that you can try to find ways to cut up the non-compete. But the first thing, of course, is understanding it and, and making sure that you understand how it's enforced and where the boundaries are. And again, depending on your frame, you're moving away in a year, maybe you don't care. You can use that negotiating capital somewhere else. Yeah, you brought up a ton of great points. And that's why I really wanted to dive into this because non-competes are a thing and it's probably going to be in almost everyone's best interest to know this stuff, but it's 
it's going to be in your contracts. And so understanding where you can and can't negotiate, we're going to talk all next week on negotiation. So stay tuned for that show because that's a fun one. But understanding what you can and can't put in, I think is really critical and what you can come back with. So I thought it was a good point that you'd made that if a non-competes in, there's likely no chance in hell you're probably going to get that removed completely. But knowing what is the kind of the levers to pull, I think are really interesting. And obviously they're going to be specific to field and specialty. And that's a general disclaimer on all of this stuff that we're talking about today and, and actually the whole month is that everyone's specialty is different, interacts differently, cops di- different, malpractice is different, everything. But we're talking about some high-level reviews to get you thinking. But if you can just hear John for the last five minutes talk about just non-compete, which is one part of your contract, not the whole thing, is one part of your contract, this is how stuff blows up, and this is how stuff gets crazy and usually not to your advantage, especially if you don't get it reviewed, look through it, and pay attention. This is easy mistakes that you could make because no one's there telling you, hey, by the way, did you become an attorney as you became a physician? But to understand all the nuances of the legal system and how things are being, because I guarantee you their legal team put this together. It wasn't the owner of the practice or the C of the hospital sitting there writing out your contract. No, it was their legal team. And you need your own legal team to turn around and review this to make sure that this multi-million dollar contract has all the provisions and things that you deem are important inside of it, but also so you understand what's important to your employer and how they're going to interact with you and the contract throughout the entire life and relationship that you have, right? And once you're done, it actually doesn't mean that you're done. There's still things that drag along with it that you have signed up on and you need to understand what those are because they have long lasting financial implications. It's not just decided it's a Wednesday I'm out and I'll start my next job next Friday. No, like there's tail covers, all sorts of stuff that comes in on competes really important to understand. And that's why I stress all the time, please spend a little money and get your contract reviewed. Really important stuff. John, thank you so much for being on the show. I know this is really helpful. I can't wait for next show with negotiation because I feel like a ton of you need to negotiate and you just don't do it. And it is painful to hear the stories and I don't want those stories to occur. So we want to give you some ammo. So you feel more confident in negotiations. I can't wait for next week, but John, thanks so much for being here. Like always, John is the founder of contract diagnostics. You guys can find them at contractdiagnostics.com. Him and his team are fantastic and they help us out at Physician Services and our financial residency community a ton. John, thank you so much for, for coming on hanging out. Always fun, man. I appreciate it. You have me. All right, everyone. Hopefully that was helpful. Let's move over to our financial malpractice segment. Moving over to our financial malpractice segment. I'm really excited to bring back on Nathan and Note Song from Thoughtful Wills. Guys, what's up? Welcome back. Thank you. We're happy to be back. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, yeah, it's gonna be fun. So, what kind of story do you have for us today? So today we thought we'd talk a little bit about durable powers of attorney, and we don't really have a specific story. The story always goes like this: little old lady in her seventies or eighties. She's frail. She had a power of attorney drawn up. Usually, it's her oldest son, and then she has to go into assisted living, and then. Either she dies or, but they just suddenly discovered that the son spent all the money. And it's just dumb, really, too, because it's like 
he wrote checks to himself and used it to pay off his gambling debts and stuff. It's never very subtle. It really, I think, highlights just the way that the coma documents, the durable power of attorney and the healthcare directive, they are really important documents, but they are also, they're really powerful documents, especially the power of attorney for finances, because it authorizes somebody to act on your behalf and act as though they were you to take money out of your account to pay your bills. And ideally, that's the idea. Like you want your oldest son to pay your mortgage while you can't or to pay your rent or to keep your healthcare coverage active. You don't want him to be writing himself checks. But there's really no way in advance to know what sort of issues you're going to need help with. So the document is that the durable power of attorney for estate planning purposes is always just a very broad document that sort of authorizes somebody to be your financial agent and do what needs to be done. But since we don't know what needs to be done, it's going to be broad because otherwise it, it could turn out that there's something you urgently needed and the document doesn't cover that. It's just a quandary. It's something that states are grappling with, um, financial institutions, estate planning attorneys like us. And there's a move to have, it's called the Uniform Power of Attorney Act that's being adopted by a number of states. But fundamentally, it still never gets around this issue because it's the real, it's like a human nature issue. It's like, how do you give somebody that much authority, but make sure that it's not abused? And fundamentally, the issue comes down to don't choose a bad person. But how do you know that too? Like, how do you know that your son isn't going to be this rotten person that's going to steal all your money? What we suggest, and we've built this into our process, our best bet is most of our clients are married couples, right? And so you usually just choose your spouse to be your financial agent. And that person, of course, they already have run of the mill of all of your accounts. No real worry about abuse there. But then essentially, when you choose the backup for the durable power of attorney, we let you choose either to have one backup who works independently or to have two essentially co-agents that have to work in concert. And my suggestion is definitely to pick that. There's no, this is not, of course, a miracle cure because you could also have two rotten sons that could collude, steal all your money that way. There's just real no fix, but yet it lessens the risk. And yeah, it's a situation of you need it. You need this document in place because you have to have somebody that the alternative is to have a conservator appointed for you. And that's a very time consuming and expensive process. And so having the document in place saves a lot of money and time, but it's don't pick somebody rotten. Do you think at any point, maybe a net worth change could occur that you're like, Hey, above a million, 5 million, 10 million, 50 million, like whatever that net worth is, it's important to not have power of attorney and to actually go the conservatorship route, or is it always better to look at it from have a power of attorney with two people. My question is, does the net worth dictate that or is it a free for all? If you had somebody that had a net worth that high, somebody in that bracket is probably not worried about having their mortgage payments made. Maybe they're already set up for auto payments, something like that. And so maybe in that circumstance, if you wanted to just avoid the durable power of attorney altogether, you could just have like a separate account set up with that person. Here's a, I have $20,000 in this account. And it's just like an operating account that you could use to pay miscellaneous. And I'm added you to the account rather than going the durable power of attorney route. But that seems like a lot of work as well. I think personally, and I wish I had that problem. I wish I had millions of dollars and it was worth I mean, we're not all just rolling around with $50 million. Wow. No, but I think having two people that are unlikely to collude, right? So everybody has friends that are not really friends together. Like you're the link. That would make me feel comfortable. People that I both that I know both care a lot about me, but they're not a couple. They're not super close friends. Or let's take Nathan's money and 
fly to Fiji, prisoner's dilemma sort of stuff that I think that I would feel pretty comfortable with. I definitely recommend, and I know Notsang does too, like having co-agents as the backup. Again, though, it's all, everybody's facts and circumstances are different. If you don't have a huge roster of people, or if you're like, I know this person would give me a kidney, right? Like they are not going to screw me over. It's, every rule has exceptions. And there's other pitfalls, I think, that families fall into when you have kids and you generally get along with them and parents don't want to show favoritism for whatever reason, you pick your eldest child out of a sense of duty, even though your youngest probably is more responsible or likely better able to manage those financial decisions. False, false. <laughs> no song's the youngest, I'm the oldest. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> Very good point, though. It's don't just default to those things. Although my parents did, and they named us in order for their durable power attorney and healthcare directive because they didn't want to hurt our feelings. But as it's playing out, my middle sister is the major finance gal and my other sister and I are just like, yep, yep, we agree. So there's that. And then also one other consideration, it's not a deal breaker, but considering proximity, if you have a child that lives across the world, it might make it more difficult than working with a child that's in town. We had a client that had to deal with that. And there's two daughters, what do you do? And it ended up that they named their one of their daughters as the a primary agent for a durable power attorney who lived six hours away. And then their other daughter, they named as the primary healthcare agent who lived in town. And that makes sense. It seems like financial matters, you can probably deal with more virtually than you can healthcare directive issues. But the other thing that I always want to emphasize is estate planning issues are not a one and done situation. You don't just create it once in your life and then that's it. You have to go into it prepared to amend your powers of attorney as needed because your wonderful, angelic, anointed child made, as Nathan pointed, turn rotten. And we've had a number of families that have reported that, you know, their, their kids have fallen to meth addiction or, or something, and we have strongly urged them to amend their powers of attorney and their trustees. So you have to be prepared to amend your powers of attorney as needed. And then my biggest just practical I think suggestion is to consider your own financial and health values. You know, well, and I bring in the health just because I'm thinking of both coma documents, but for both of them, is your agent going to be able to honor your wishes? Will they be able to continue giving gifts to organizations that you believe in or that you regularly give to? Will they honor your donation wishes for organs? All of that kind of guidance spares your family the emotional angst of having to guess at your wishes when they're already so distressed because of you being incapacitated, it just comes down to really, and I just laugh when I see online will-making services. I know Nathan doesn't look at them, but I do. And it just makes me laugh when there's, you can make these decisions in 10 minutes. No, take longer than 10 minutes. Choose wisely. Think long and hard about who you want to pick as your primary agent or joint agents because your life is literally in their hands. You're out. You're out of the game. Blinking your eyes really doesn't help. I'm so morbid. Sorry. And on that note, I think that was really also joking aside. I think that was really well said. You guys had some really good points. And I think the entire piece could be a potential financial malpractice that we see across the board with just different agents have gone bad, if you will, whether they're the oldest kid or the youngest, that's up for debate. I'll let you guys duke it out later. But thank you so much for coming back on and helping us walk through this financial malpractice piece. And if any of you out there do not have your estate planning in order, please get it done. And you can reach out to Nathan and Notesong at financialresidency.com slash TW. 
All right, we're moving lots of stuff around. Excited that the book is about here. We are creating that book. Doug Krause has authored the book about buying your first home and really excited. I was doing the forward and it's coming out from Financial Residency. So you can check it out along with our first book that we did all about building your financial plan over at financialresidency.com slash book. One last thing, remember before we go, our sponsor today is Advice Media and do not forget to schedule that consult with them to get that free $60 gift card. I want to schedule a consult, not going to lie. I wonder if they'll give me the $60 gift card. Anyway, there's strategic insight on what your current digital marketing is doing and not doing for you. It's important. So contact Advice Media, drpodcastnetwork.com slash advice media. Like we always do, the link is in the description of the show you're listening to us in right now. All right, everyone, have a great week. We'll see you on Friday, and let's hear that important disclaimer from my little man, Wyatt. Have a great week. Cheers. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.